Sonny, thank you so much. That was fantastic, wasn't it? Uh, let's be reminded that the children and the youth in this church are not simply the future of the church. They are the present of the church. And um, we have been ministered to today. I hope you were greeted by some youth and children as you came in. Uh, and welcomed by them, and I hope you were made to feel welcome, and we were just led into God's Word um, by one of the children in our church. What a blessing. What an absolute blessing. Well, my name is Todd Malone, the lead pastor here at FBC, and it is wonderful to be here with you this morning. Uh, this is a very important day, a very big day for us. It's Groundhog Day. Um. Rumor has it that Puxatani Phil did not see his shadow. So, <laughs> so we are going to have um, a warmer next six weeks. So I know there are mixed emotions about that. No, today is also a big day for another reason. Obviously, today is Super Bowl Sunday, and we've got the Kansas City Chiefs and the San Francisco 49ers. We'll be playing each other. We'll try not to break it into any fistfights this morning. Um, and uh, I think it'll be a lot of fun. It's going to be, it'll be good. I'll try to get us out of here in time for the fourth quarter. Um, <laughs> so we can catch at least part of the Super Bowl and part of the ads. Um, I have to thinking, what would happen if right before the Super Bowl, the officials came out into the field and they got the teams together and coaches together and said, look, we have heard all of the complaining on sports radio, ESPN, everywhere else about, does anyone know what a catch is? Does anyone know what pass interference is? Does anyone know what an illegal hit is? There's just so much complaining about the rules are not clear and we don't know how to apply them, so we're going to do something different today for the Super Bowl. We're not going to have rules. After a second, one of the players puts his hands up and says, well, How do I know if I made a catch? How do I know if I, I got a first down? The official looks at him and says, no rules. And then a linebacker puts his hand up and says, how do I know if my hit is legal? Kind of smiles. And what penalties will happen if I make an illegal hit? The official looks at him and says, no rules. Offensive coordinator puts his hand up and says, um, how do we know when the offense needs to come off the field in fact, does the offense ever need to come off the field? And how do we know if we score? The official looks at him and says, no rules. And then it's a kicker who figures out the big problem. And he puts his hand up and he says, how do we start the game? And the official just looks at him and shrugs. No rules. Our world looks a lot like a football game with no rules. What is success? What is a mistake? What's the price for our mistakes? There is confusion about how we get measured, and when we get measured, and by whom we get measured. 
And so we look at politics, not just in this country, but around the world. We look at governments around the world, and, and we, see, we see confusion, and we see intense disagreements and division at the highest levels around the world. And we look at these people, and these people look at one another and, and are asking the question, does anyone know what's right and wrong? Does anyone know how we're supposed to be measured, how we know what success is, what failure is, and what the penalties are for failure? We look at scandals in Hollywood, in major sports, in the news media. Everyone has their own idea of, of what it means to succeed, what it means to make a mistake, what the price is for a mistake. Everyone has their own idea for how we measure ourselves, who measures us, when we measure us, what the standard is. And you know what? It's not too different in our churches. I was in a church as a kid in Oregon that went through a church split. Here was the issue. Actually, there were two issues. The pastor was not in his office Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, because he was out visiting people and witnessing. But they wanted him in his office. And, and this was the big one, at the end of the service, he would walk down to the front of the stage and pray with people. That was morally wrong. He should be standing at the back door greeting members as they left. That church, which is still going today and is a, is a good church, and that pastor, which is still going today in a different, different location um, and doing great, but for that church... Where he stood at the end of the service was a moral issue of right and wrong, and the pastor lost his job because of it. There is deep, deep confusion over what is right, what is wrong, how are we measured, how and when and why, by whom. And confusion in these areas leads to chaos in our nations. It leads to chaos in our churches. And honestly, it leads to chaos in our own lives, even in our own souls. And this is not a new problem. This is an issue that we encounter as we start a new series today in the book of Romans. And the book of Romans is going to take us almost all the way through the entire year. And Romans is going to bring clarity where there is confusion. Now, the biblical idea, the biblical word for what I've been describing, the idea of how do we know what, what success really is and what mistakes really are and, and what the price is for that and, and, and how we're measured and, and when and by whom, the word for that in the Bible is righteousness. And what I want us to see at this chart, which I put on the back of your handout for you, is that very central very central to the theme of the book of Romans is the, is the issue of righteousness. The first 17 verses of the book, I'm not on this, am I? Hey, there we go, okay. First 17 verses of the book, is the introduction. Then for the next several chapters, what Paul is going to tell us is that God gives us righteousness. He's going to explain the need for it, what it is, how righteousness affects us. And then he's going to go into a, a pretty detailed discussion of why in the history of God's people it has been rejected. And then the last third of the book is all about how the people live by faith. How they live in righteousness, in the church, in the world, with the weak and with the strong. The book is going to bring clarity to where there is confusion. 
And what I want to do this morning is introduce the book as we walk through the introduction to Romans. Now, we need to remember that Romans was a letter that was written on a specific occasion to very specific people. And to understand the book of Romans, we need to step back and meet those people, get a glimpse of some of the ideas of the purpose of the book, and get a feel for the major themes of the book. And that will help us to understand the clarity that Paul brings to confusion for the Romans and to us. Well, let's start by meeting some of the people. And the first person that we need to meet is the Apostle Paul. And look at how he describes himself in these first five verses. Now, I want to point out that this opening is pretty normal for a letter in that time period. What you would do is the writer would introduce himself or talk about himself before moving on. But what is unusual in this letter is how much time Paul spends on it. And we're going to talk about that in a second. But let's start by noticing something. Paul calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, that sounds very humble to us, and it is very humble because it's really a word for slave. But here's the other interesting thing about this word. This word, in the minds of the Jewish people that he was writing to, would have immediately made a connection for them. This is the exact word that was used to describe Moses and David. So for the Jewish people in that audience, they are hearing Paul is linking himself. He is setting himself at a status at the level of of Moses and David. The other way that Paul describes himself is as an apostle. That that means like an an envoy or, or a diplomat. And he specifically says that he is named an apostle Among all the nations, that was a way that they had of referring to the Gentiles. In that time period, there was the Jews, there were the nations. And Paul is saying that he is an envoy, he is a diplomat with a message that comes directly from God. Sent to all of the Gentiles throughout the world. And all of this in here is establishing that the message that he is carrying on behalf of God is the message that God has been working and promising through all of biblical history. What is Paul doing here? Paul is establishing his credentials. Paul is saying to these people in Rome, What I'm about to say is extremely important, and you need to listen and hear it, and I have the authority to speak it. And why does he need to do this? Because he's never met the people in Rome. When Paul writes this, he is down here in a city called Corinth. This is the end of his third missionary journey. He has been in ministry for 25 years, and he'll describe this at the end of Romans, but he has started his ministry down here in Jerusalem, and over the course of 25 years, through three different trips, has gone here, has gone up here, and has now gone through the middle. What he describes at the end of Romans is, I have planted churches, I have preached the gospel, I have ministered all over the Eastern Roman Empire. And now he is sitting here in Corinth, and he's looking ahead to what is next. And he will tell us at the end of Romans what is next. Here is his plan. His plan is to go back to Jerusalem. He's going to deliver a collection of money that Gentiles have given to support the Jews who are in poverty back in Jerusalem. And then his plan is to come up here to Rome, gain some more financial support in Rome, and then go west and minister in Spain. That's his plan. So if Paul's next move is to go from Corinth This way to Jerusalem, 
how does the letter get from Corinth up here to Rome? Meet Phoebe. Phoebe, it's a good picture of her. It's a nice photograph. We know from chapter 16 of Romans that Phoebe was from a church called Kinkaria, Kinkuria, something like that. Kinkaria is right next to Corinth. She's a leader in that church. This word right here, this Greek word, is the word deacon. It is that word right there. She was a leader, a deacon in the church, or deaconess in the church. It says that she was a patron to Paul and to many. That means she was a wealthy financial supporter of Paul's ministry. And Paul uses an interesting word here. He says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe. The word commend is a translation of a word that means I recommend her. I approve her. And every single scholar I read said the reason Paul uses this word is because of the role that she plays in the book of Romans. She's actually only brought up in, verse six, in chapter 16. But here's what she did from best we can put together. She is the one that Paul gave this letter to. And she went to Rome and would have read this letter to the churches. Now, what does that mean? Historically, in that time, what that would involve is Paul would prepare her like a lawyer preparing a witness. Actually, even more intense than that. They would rehearse. They would work on it together. Because when she would go up there, she literally would speak on behalf of Paul. And when she was done reading the letter, the church would then ask her questions. And she would answer with the authority of Paul. So this is the backdrop. This is the background to the book of Romans. It is being read publicly out loud to a group of people by a representative of Paul who is speaking on his behalf. So who are the Romans? The Romans are a people who are loved by God and called to be saints. It's clear that the Romans are Christians. In fact, it says in verse 8 that their faith was proclaimed in all the world. They were a model of faith to people throughout the Roman Empire. Now, this is a good drone picture of Rome uh, in the first century. What this model of first century Rome captures well is that Rome was an incredibly densely populated city. I read one source that said that Rome in the first century is the most densely populated city ever in human history, including today. There were that many millions of people crammed into that, into a relatively small space. It was incredibly densely populated. And it was the center of the world in that, in that day. It's where people came. And so what you have is this cosmopolitan mixed group of people who are all coming together in this very densely populated city the estimate is, is there probably were as, as many as 12 different house churches that were ministering at the time Paul wrote this throughout the city of Rome. And they are made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And here's the history of the Roman church, the best we can put it together. If you go to Acts chapter 2 and read about the day of Pentecost you'll notice that there are a list of people from around the world who are there listening to the apostles speak, listening to Peter preach, and, and many, many of them come to Christ. 
in that list, it says there are devout Jews from Rome. So in a roughly AD 33 at Pentecost, what seems to have happened is that you have a number of Jews who come to Christ at the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and they go back to Rome and start a church. And as would have been the case then, the church would be in the synagogue, or at very least it would closely match the synagogue. Over time, as happened in every church that was planted, you had Gentiles who were converted. Now, what do you think the church looked like during this first 16-year period? It was Jewish. It was based on the synagogue. The way that they worshipped, the way that they lived their lives outside of, of the church meetings, the way that they thought would be very closely tied to how these Jewish leaders had lived as people of God their entire lives. And then in AD 49, the Roman Emperor Claudius says to all of the Jews, which would have included all of the Jewish Christians, you must leave Rome. What does that do to the church? Now you have Gentile leaders. And somewhere in here, early to mid-50s, the Jews start coming back. And even though um, officially they weren't allowed to, the authorities didn't stop them. And they start trickling back. Here is their condition as they come back. They have lost everything. They have lost all their possessions. They've lost their homes. They have lost everything. And guess what else those Jewish Christians leaders have lost? They have lost leadership. They are no longer the leaders in, these church, in this church. Think about what that must have been like for them. Think about what that experience was because in the intervening years, what's happened in the church? The Gentiles are starting to make this church look a lot more Gentile than Jewish. Some of the customs that they had followed, these Gentiles didn't grow up with. That's not how they understood relating to God. And so it's starting to look a lot more Gentile. Now, what would happen if something like that happened in a church today? Right? The, say you're part of the Jewish group. You come back and what you're saying is, this isn't the church it used to be. When we led this church, we knew what was right and we knew what was wrong and we did what was right. This church doesn't feel like home anymore. If you're a Gentile, what is this like for you? These people are pressuring us to do things that, that there's not an issue of right or wrong here. It's just their traditions. These people were taken out of leadership by God. And now what we're doing is far more culturally relevant to the people that we minister to every single day. Why can't they just deal with it? Can you picture that? Can you relate to that? What would happen in our churches today? Well, worst case scenario, the two groups would be really angry at each other and there'd be a church split. Or, or maybe different people from, from both groups will just say there are too many compromises. There are too many things that I disagree with and they'll just start trickling away from the church. Or maybe, maybe in a best case scenario, they'll be agreeable and they'll say, you know what? Let's just go plant a separate church over here and we can have our Jewish church and we can have our Gentile church and each church will be culturally relevant to its own people. And that is not 
one of the options or the option that Paul selects. Paul is going in a very different direction. Instead, what he's going to do is he is going to say, there is a way for this church to be together. And the way is by connecting and understanding the connection between the gospel of Jesus. What Wayne so clearly and wonderfully articulated that Christ did for us on the cross to bring us in right relationship with God. There is a connection between the gospel and there is a connection between the righteousness of God. And if you get that, if you understand that, Romans, it will change how you live and it will change how you function as a church. And that leads us into the purposes of the letter of Romans. Now, Paul actually never says specifically why he writes the book. I mean, this is his longest book of doctrine written to people that he's never met. Why does he do this? Well, we can get some glimpses in verses 8 through 15. And one of the first things that we see is that, that Paul loved the Romans, even though, that he, even though he'd never met them. These are people that he thanks God for constantly, continually. These are people that he prays for without ceasing. These are people that, that, that he longs to meet, that he wants to actually get to know them face to face. So Paul hears about the faith of these people, but he also hears about this, this crazy situation that the church is in where leadership is transitioned from a Jewish leadership to a Gentile leadership, and there's tension. And I'm telling you, as a pastor, I look at that situation and say, uh, we'll keep a safe email distance. But that's not what Paul does. Paul is a spiritual first responder. Paul, he is there, he is, there's a fire in Rome, so to speak. Let me go to it. I want to come to you. And this letter is the first step in him expressing his love that he has for them and letting them know how much he cares for them. This letter is also an effort to strengthen and encourage them. He says that he wants to come and share the gifts that he has to strengthen them. And then he almost corrects himself. He says, it's not just about me strengthening you. It's about us mutually <clears throat> encouraging one another. And this is exactly what Paul is going to start to do through the course of this letter. And the way that he's going to do it, if you step back and think about it, is pretty shocking. Because what he is going to start with, starting next week, is point one, you're messed up. Point one, you are messed up, twisted, broken, at far deeper levels than you could ever, ever understand. He's like a coach who is breaking down the athlete to build that athlete back up because then he's going to go on from there and he's going to say, and if you start with the understanding of how broken and messed up you are, then you will begin to see the heights of God's love and grace in ways that you could never, ever understand. Here's the third thing we see in these verses. He is eager to preach the gospel to everyone. That's what he means here. To absolutely everyone. He is eager to preach the gospel. Can we stop and think about that for a second? <clears throat> Who's he writing to? Christians. Christians whose faith is well known around the world. And what does he want to do? He wants to preach the gospel. And that should cause us to pause and realize that there is something about the gospel that most of us miss most of the time. 
the gospel shapes every area of the Christian life. Growth in righteousness, growth in Christian maturity is about applying the gospel more consistently in our lives and more completely to more areas of our lives. And so, how do Jews and Gentiles live and work together in the church in Rome? Paul's answer is going to be the gospel. How do Christians deal with a government that is set against them? His answer is the gospel. How do Christians deal with enemies in the culture around them? The answer is the gospel. How do do Christians deal with one another when they have different convictions, different ways of seeing the world, different opinions? Paul's answer is the gospel. Paul turns confusion into clarity through his love, his desire to strengthen them, and by preaching the gospel to them, which starts right in the book of Romans. Then the last two verses of the introduction introduce us to four major themes that are going to carry us throughout the book. The first theme is, of course, the theme of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. We use that word a lot. What does it mean? It was a common word then that meant good news. Paul is not ashamed of the good news. Why is he not ashamed of the good news? Because it is the power of God. The good news that that Wayne shared with us during communion is an expression of the very power of God that comes to work in our world. What is the purpose of the gospel? It brings our salvation. And it brings it to everyone who believes. And what else does the gospel do? The gospel reveals God's righteousness. When you come face to face with the gospel, you come face to face with the righteousness, the rightness, the justice, the faithfulness of God. It reveals what is truly right and wrong. It reveals the true nature of the words that measure the the standard that measures whether we are successful our failures, and what the penalty is. What else this does is it points out that everyone starts on the wrong side of right and wrong. But God moves us to the right side. That is the gospel. It's interesting, too, I pointed this out earlier, but this is worth stopping and really making sure we catch this. The gospel was promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. What is Paul saying here? He's saying the gospel is God faithfully keeping his promises. That's what the gospel is. It is God's word being fulfilled. God's promises being fulfilled. And it is fulfilled in the coming of his son. Why does he say descended from David according to the flesh? Because this is the promised Messiah who turns out to be so much more than the promised Messiah. He is the very presence of God on earth. The theme of the, of the gospel is the assurance that God keeps his promises. The second theme is is the nature of the promise that God keeps. It's about salvation. And salvation in Romans, there's our key term, salvation in Romans is about not just the future going to heaven, it is about the present, how we live right now. We are saved from the wrath of God, and we are saved to a life with God now and forever. And it is available to everyone who believes. Who believes that Jesus is who he said he is. And that he did what he said he would do. He is God who came for us. Lived a perfect life. Died on the cross as a payment for the penalty of everything that we have done wrong. Was raised three days later. That we would have the power to live righteously ourselves. It is available to everyone who believes. The theme of salvation is the theme of God's deliverance to 
everyone, regardless of their background, regardless of what they have done, both good and bad. The third theme, and this is huge in the book of Romans, is the righteousness of God. This is one of the most important themes in the book. We have to understand the righteousness of God in two different ways that you can understand it in English because there's the same two ways you can understand it in Greek. Righteousness of God could refer to God's righteousness. And that will clearly be the case as the book of Romans unfolds. God is the perfect judge. He is the perfect model and standard of what is good and what is right and what is true. He is always just. He is always faithful. He is always on the side of what is right. That's one way to understand the righteousness of God. The other way is the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness that God is the source of. And that is critical through the book of Romans. God declares us to be righteous, but he also makes us righteous in how we live. The theme of righteousness in the book of Romans is about God is the standard of righteousness. And as the standard of righteousness, only he has the authority to declare that we are righteous. And only he has the power to make us righteous. The last theme is a theme of belief or faith. I put them side by side because in Greek, it's the same root word. And it's a root word that refers to confidence to the point of a positive response. Confidence in God <clears throat> to the point of a positive response. Confidence that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he would do. And because of that confidence, it leads to salvation. It leads to the revelation of what is right. And it leads to a life that is righteous. The theme of faith is that God's revealed righteousness saves us from the fact that we have not lived up to that righteousness. And it is the basis for living in righteousness as we move forward. It's a funny looking guy. It's a guy named Martin Luther. He lived and wrote during the early 1500s, late 1400s, mid 1500s. Um, some of you will remember this. <clears throat> When the year 2000 was approaching or when it hit, not just talking about the Y2K thing, but a whole bunch of magazines and news programs and different programs went back and said, who is the most influential person over the last thousand years? And probably the name that came up more than any other was this guy. Martin Luther. If you don't know about Martin Luther, he was a Catholic monk and he turned the world upside down when he read the book of Romans. We have the German language as it exists today because of Martin Luther. We have church, this church exists because of Martin Luther. There are countries that are divided the way they are divided because of Martin Luther. And it came down to Martin Luther reading verse 17 of Romans 1. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. Martin Luther read those words and said, how can that ever be good news? How can the revelation of the righteousness of God ever be a good thing? 
Because God is the perfect judge. And as the perfect judge, he would not be righteous if, if he did not deal with and judge and bring wrath against all the evil that is in the world. And that includes all the sin and evil that is in me. And if God is righteous, if I'm going to come face to face with the righteousness of God, how is that ever good news? And then he kept prayerfully reading and studying the book of Romans. And as he worked through the book of Romans, what he realized is that the revelation of the righteousness of God goes hand in hand with the good news of Jesus Christ. That it's not just a revelation of God as judge. It is a revelation of God who saves. And when he got that, it changed his life. It changed the church worldwide. And it literally changed the entire world. Our study of Romans may not change the entire world. But when we're done, I hope, I pray that what it does for you, what it does for this church, what it does for this community is that we are in awe of our God. Paul loves the church in Rome, even though he's never met them. And despite the unrest that's in the church, Paul loves them enough to encourage them and strengthen them by taking them back to the gospel. And Paul will unfold this gospel throughout the book of Romans to show that the gospel and God's righteousness are intimately, powerfully connected. And really the point of this introduction, and you could argue that it's the point of the entire book of Romans, is that the gospel saves us and reveals God's righteousness. And what I hope that you understand as we finish this introduction is that those two things shouldn't naturally go together. That's what Martin Luther had to deal with when he read that introduction. How in the world? is the righteousness of God, good news. But when you read through the book of Romans, you see our God is a faithful, righteous God who saves. And it becomes powerfully, powerfully good news. So what would Paul say to the world leaders and celebrities and athletes and church members and to each one of us who are all dealing with some deep confusion about how we know what success is and what mistakes are and what the penalties are and, and when and how we are measured, here's what Paul would say based on the first 17 verses, based really on the entire book of Romans. Ponder deeply who Jesus is. Ponder deeply what Jesus has done for you. Ponder deeply why he did it. And you, as you do this, will get a great deal of clarity on what is right and wrong and how to live it. Some suggestions for how to respond. Um, I don't want to say this is more important than anything else we've read, but it will be life-changing for you. Life-changing. If you will take up the task of rewriting the book of Romans just one week at a time in your own words. And here, watch me make people panic. Watch me make the staff panic. I have no idea what we're going to do. Not a clue. Making this up. Kathy's getting ready to throw something at me. Youth, if by the end of this study... You have rewritten the entire book of Romans. Kathy's going to do something for you. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's just 
on my heart. We will celebrate. It doesn't just have to be the youth if it's younger, college age, but I'm going to focus on the youth. We will do something to celebrate. Second thing I would encourage you to do, right? This is one of the things that is at the center of Paul's heart is to strengthen and encourage the Romans and be strengthened and encouraged by them. What can you do this week that will strengthen and encourage someone that you love that is a part of this church? Offer thanksgiving just as Paul did for the people who have been models of faith. Right? Remember, the Romans were models of faith to the world, and Paul thanks God for them. Who has been a model of faith in your life? Spend time in prayer thanking God for these people, and it's probably not a bad idea to let them know. And the last one, I realize this sounds daunting. There's a reason for this. Read the entire book of Romans in one sitting. Read it all the way through. Why do I suggest that? Because for the original audience, that's how they heard it. You'll get frustrated, right? Because in our culture, what we're so used to is, is to take a section of the Bible and really study it. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? What's the mean? You can't do that when you're reading it through in one, in one giant sit, sitting. That's not the point of that. The point is to get a feel for what's going on overall. You'll notice there's a a phrase that Paul used in the introduction that Todd just kind of skipped right over. But it's repeated in the second to last verse of the book. You'll go, why is that? It's repeated word for word. It must be important. Those are the sorts of things that you start to notice if you allow yourself to read it in one sitting and just kind of take it in. There are always three groups of people who are sitting here. There is one group that comes here, and like Wayne so wonderfully laid out, you may have been in church for five minutes, you may have been in church for 25 years, but you have never accepted the gospel into your own life and said, I want to be a follower of Christ in right relationship with God. I know that I've messed up, but Christ paid the penalty for that. And I want to receive that forgiveness and live my life in relationship with God. There is another group of people who have done that, but, but they have not grown in righteousness. They've not grown in Christian maturity. And what they need is help living by faith. And there's a third group. So we have a lot of these in this church. That people who have walked with God for a long time, they have grown in righteousness. They have grown in Christian maturity. They have lived by faith. If you're in that first group, then your invitation, your next step is to come to know Christ and the gospel. And how you can take that next step is exactly what Wayne laid out for you in praying a prayer. Or just come talk to one of us at the end of the service. If you're in that second group and you want to grow in living in righteousness and living by faith. Honestly, that's a really good next step too. It's just to come talk to us. Another thing you can do is on your bulletin, on this connection card part, just write it. Write it. Slip it in one of the boxes that are, that are in the foyer on either side of the foyer, and we'll get in contact with you. And if you're one of the many people in the church who you have grown and you have lived by faith and you've grown in righteousness, guess what? You have a next step that is extremely important. Your next step is to look back, look to those other two groups and say, what is my role? What is my role? How do I help them? If you want to take that step, contact me. Use the connection card. Contact any of the staff. We want to help you take that next step. We have to close a message like this in prayer. 
because we have to thank God for his faithfulness, his goodness, his love for us. Would you stand and join me in closing in prayer? And I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. They are here to pray with you no matter what you need prayer for or with in your life. If you've come to know Christ, if this morning you prayed to receive Christ into your life, you want to have a relationship with him, just come tell one of us, talk to us. If you're struggling in a relationship or finances, just come tell us, talk to us, let us pray for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come here in awe of you because you are the faithful God who keeps your promises. You are the righteous God who shows us what it means to succeed in life, who shows us what the very nature of the mistakes that we make are, who shows us how we are measured, who shows us how to be saved from being measured. Or make us a people who are unashamed of the gospel. Make us a people like the Romans who were known not because they had great celebrations, not because they had great music or great youth or, or great children's ministries or, or great speaking. Lord, may we be known in this community. May we be known throughout the world as people of faith. May people look at this church and say, that's what Christian faith looks like. Or may they look at my life, may they look at the lives of each person here and be able to say that is what the Christian faith looks like. Lord, we are not capable of that on our own. So we stand before you humbly in need and dependence upon your work in our lives. And you would, we ask that you would do that work this week. We pray it in Jesus' name today. Let me leave you with a thought. Here's what we've said about God. The righteousness of God is revealed in his faithfulness to his promises to save you. So now, in response to that truth, leave here mutually strengthening and encouraging one another with the truth of the gospel.